I'm recording this post uh, in the evening as it's starting to get dark outside. And it just kind of popped in my head, something I haven't thought about or someone I hadn't thought about in a long time. But uh, Moody Radio in Chicago uh, used to have this program that was hosted by Mike Kellogg. Uh, and uh, it was called, I think it was called Songs in the Night. And, um, and he would play these wonderful uh, variety of worship songs that were kind of old school, the hymns and, and some various versions that were done that were all very thoughtful and meditative and and he had this wonderful, dip, deep, rich voice, and he would just talk, and he would be just so comforting and all this. Well, I'm not going to talk that way, because I'll put you to sleep. He had a wonderful gift of keeping us awake and wanting us to hear more, but I, I would put you to sleep that way. So here in this night post, as I'm recording this, uh, I'm going to try and make sure I don't put you to sleep. But we're going to open our Bibles to Romans chapter 7. This is where I will try and imitate Mike Kellogg, who always would connect the songs with passages of Scripture and all that kind of thing. It was just a wonderful program. Kind of glad to be thinking about that again. It was, it was really cool. But anyway, here we are. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, that so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work, and our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the letter or the written code. So Paul begins to move into what, you know, if we forget what we've been talking about in the previous chapters getting to this point, it almost sounds like a disjointed move into a discussion about a little bit with marriage and how it connects with the law and this kind of thing. And we might lose... Uh, the richness of what he's saying if we don't connect it with everything that has come before. What Paul has been talking about is righteousness apart from the law, a righteousness that is by faith, by God's grace. Uh, the fact that our, 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 our justification is imputed to us, it is given to us because of the act of another, not because of our acts. As a matter of fact, our, uh, our, our deeds really don't earn us anything. And that's an enormous point that Paul makes throughout the book. And it's important that we think through the implications of this, because this now becomes really the crux of the, or the, the basis of the argument that he now begins to make through the analogy of somebody, a woman who is married to one husband until he dies, and then she's free to marry another. And she can't marry two at the same time, but when she's bound to the one until it ultimately, until he dies, or that period of time ends, and then she is free then to join to another. And she couldn't go back to the other and, and have that dual relationship. No, it's either one or the other is essentially what's at the heart of this. And so this analogy about marriage that Paul talks about in the first few verses here of the passage really are intended to help drive home the point and make clear in an example that we can understand a very, very important theological truth about our salvation, about our righteousness, our justification, which is all by God's grace, and it is through the finished work of Christ. 
You will recall how Jesus at one point said that he had not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And so, in, in that statement, he is saying two things, essentially. He is saying that on the one hand, the law is good and it is right. It ought not be destroyed. It ought not be thought of as something that is evil or wrong that needs to be done away with. It ought to be seen for what it is a standard of righteousness, God's holiness written out and explained and expressed, uh, all of these things. However, he did come to fulfill it. In other words, the other thing he's saying is, we're not destroying the law, but we are satisfying all that is required by it. And in doing so, he brings to an end the period of time known as the time of the law or the time under the law. And now it's time for a new covenant, right? The time of the old covenant comes to an end in the fulfillment, uh, in the work that Jesus fulfilled on the cross in paying for the debt of sin, living a perfectly sinless life, completely living according to all that was required in the law, and then ultimately dying for the sins of a world that could not keep the law. This is an undercurrent to the entire book of Romans. In one way or another, this is always what Paul comes back to, this concept. Well, here in this passage, it's, he gives us this wonderful analogy that we can really understand, that helps us get a sense of, of the difference and the non-compatibility of the law and grace, especially when it comes to the life of the believer trying to, as it were, be married to both. So the analogy that we can understand is a very simple one, uh, the first three verses of the passage. We know that you cannot be married to more than one person at a time. Uh, That would be polygamy. That is completely outside of the law of God. But what we understand is that when we are married to somebody, we are bound to that person until death do us part. When death comes, we are now released from the, uh, the, the commitment or the covenant that was made with that person who passed away, and we are now free to join into a covenant with a new person, should we be led in terms of marriage. But the analogy here is that you cannot do that while you're still married to the old covenant, the old or under the old covenant, that relationship that you entered into with the, with the first spouse. But when he dies, the woman is then free to marry another. There's no going back to the other one. It's done. It's finished. It, it has run its course. And now it's time for the new. And Paul uses that simple, understandable analogy to help us understand a very profound truth when it comes to the law and grace. Um, This is something that is important for us to understand. Not that any of these other things aren't important, but this is really, really a big deal. Uh, And it's something that is often missed when it comes to the sharing of the gospel or, or Bible teaching on the subject of law and grace and this kind of thing. Paul is saying in no uncertain terms, in about as clear of language as could be given, that there is no mixing of the two relationships. The one is illegitimate until the other one comes to an end. Once it comes to an end, it is done, and now the time has come where it's okay to enter into the new relationship. With no thought to going back to the other one, in the analogy, that person is gone. There, there is no going back to it. It's, it's, it's dead. He's dead. It's gone. He's finished. He's run his course. But now the new covenant or the new relationship can be entered into freely as a separate and later covenant. 
And so Paul here again says, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. In other words, the old covenant ultimately was satisfied in Christ, and by faith in Christ, you have died now to the old covenant. Uh, You are now done with that which came before. Now, bear with me, because if you kind of wrestle with this idea, we're going to make our way through what Paul says here, and he says something staggering in this discussion. It really is kind of a statement that should end all debate at all of any kind, and he says it here in just a second. But he says here, you died through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. In other words, in the flesh, we thought that by obeying the law, we could be right with God, all the while not realizing that the law, though it's perfect, it's lofty, it's holy, it's a beautiful representation of God's holiness, we could not live it out. We could not satisfy it. We could not keep it perfectly as is required. And so therefore, the law could not serve the purpose that we thought it served. It actually served a different one. Uh, it tended to push against. It was so holy and so good that it grated against our sin nature and actually aroused it. Uh, it was not intended to save us because of our shortcomings, our shortfall, our complete uh, our sin, our lack of capacity. It was never given for us to keep it as a means of righteousness. But rather, as Paul would say in Galatians 3, I've said this many, many times, The law was intended to teach us two things, in keeping us walking between the lines, like a schoolmaster, keeping us walking in a certain direction, really for two purposes. One, to recognize this inability on our part to keep it. If we really understand the law, we know it's too lofty, we can't keep it perfectly. And there is no making up for it in our own deeds and our own flesh. The other thing it showed us, was the answer to the problem. Well, then what can I do? Can't do anything, but put your trust in Christ. Now, the schoolmaster was given to us to lead us to the person of Christ. So Paul here says, look, the idea of the law was not to sort of find a way to blend it and sort of be involved in two relationships, but rather we are to leave now the relationship that is satisfied or has run its course, ultimately fulfilled in Christ, and now join into a new relationship. And to make the point further, and this is that statement that should really bring to an end all debate, he goes on in verse 6 and says, but now we are released from the law. Now that word katergeo, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is a word that literally means something has passed away. It is, we've been separated from it now. It is gone, it's past. Paul says very clearly that now we are released from that which has passed away. It's not that he Jesus destroyed it. He fulfilled it. The law remains intact as this beautiful expression of God's holiness. But we now understand that since we can't keep it, we must enter into the relationship with the one who is not the other, but is now a new relationship in Christ. We leave behind that which has passed away because it's been satisfied. And now we come ultimately into this new relationship. Um, that matter of fact, Paul even describes the law as that which held us captive, um, certainly in our minds and thinking that we could keep it, but it ultimately kept us bound in, a, in, in this position of lostness for our inability to keep it. 
But now it has been fulfilled. It has, by virtue of the analogy, it has died. And now we enter into the new relationship in Christ, the one who rose from the dead. And so it's, it goes on to finish verse 6 by saying, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the letter or the written code. So very clearly in verse 6, he says, the law has passed away. There is now a new relationship. We are now released from that old relationship. And secondly, we no longer serve in the way of the written code. In other words, we are not living as though we still think we're bound to, to keep the law perfectly. We never could. That's a done thing. We, we could never could do it. But instead, we live by the Spirit. And Paul in chapter 8 will go on to talk more about this as this discussion continues to expand uh, and grow. Matter of fact, between here and where we get into chapter 8, this next section is going to begin to touch on Paul's very, very transparent admission of how he is incapable of keeping the law just by his nature. Uh, He knows what he should be doing, but he can't do it. He doesn't find the strength to do it. The things he knows he shouldn't be doing those things he will, he, he will admit he finds himself doing. And it destroys him. It crushes him. It brings him to a point of abject anguish. Wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of death? I, I, can't, I can't do it. It's impossible. So what can I do? What can, what can be done to rectify this, uh, this, this, this unrectifiable problem that, uh, in and of myself? And so therefore he goes on to speak of this glorious truth that there's therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So we'll come to that as we make our way through the rest of chapter 7 into chapter 8. Um, really, chapters 7 and 8 really need to be taken as a, as a unit, but that would be such a long study uh, that it would take forever to upload. And so, But it really pains me to stop there. But this is a good sp- place to stop and then begin to move into that specific discussion that Paul talks about here in, in dealing with the flesh once and for all, recognizing that it is in Christ and in Christ alone that there's no condemnation. In my flesh, nothing good dwells, but ultimately in him, uh, he, he stands clean and forgiven and, and able to, to, to still please God and to walk with God and that kind of thing, all as a result of the finished work of Christ. And our response then becomes to that. So that being said, um, uh, again, it's a, a relatively short passage and we did it in a relatively short time. But the implications of this are profound, and I would I would kind of commit it to you to consider and meditate on that and pray about that and, and read the relevant passages that connect to this idea and understand this element of our theology because it has such practical implications and ramifications. If we if we think that our righteousness is based on what we do, we are clearly in in a difference of view from what the scriptures say. But it also drives us then to live out a performance-based salvation, a performance-based walk with God, rather than, as is intended in Scripture, for us to recognize our inability to keep the law. Therefore, we fall wholly on the grace of God and the finished work of Christ, and our lives now become a response to that, no longer trying to earn, but just simply living in response to the goodness and grace of God, having received a gift that is immeasurable, we simply live lives of thanksgiving for that. And in doing so, we, we tend to satisfy uh, really what Jesus boiled the law down to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we end up living that way in response to the grace of God, the fundamental truth of the gospel, setting us free 
free now from sin and free to live by grace, but in a way that blesses and pleases the Lord. Not earning, but simply saying thank you. Uh, I feel like I could just say that in various ways over and over and over and over again, and I would never get tired of doing it. Uh, So beautiful and so glorious is the grace of God to know that I am free, not only from the penalty of my sin, but free from trying to earn my salvation. Really, just the burden that lifts off our shoulders, the, the tension and the anguish in our hearts and minds washed away. Now we live in response. It's just, uh, it's just so glorious. So I hope that, uh, that that passage strikes you the same way. I really hope it drives you to a place of worship and, and response, that it, it causes us to, even as Paul was saying earlier, we would never even think of sin as a, an okay thing or approach sin casually, because how could we if we recognize what we've been rescued from in the glorious, loving, gracious hand of the one who saved us from it? All I want to do is live my life for him. It's like the expression, he died for me, I'll live for him. So praise the Lord. Well, Father, we thank you for this beautiful, life-giving, stress-removing, anguish-washing-away, beautiful truth that we are saved by your grace, received by faith, but completely upon the shoulders of what Jesus did. When he died for our sin on the cross, we just completely, and rose from the dead, we completely were washed clean, past, present, and future, debt completely paid in full. What is left for us to do to earn? There's nothing. Thank you for this, and thank you for taking so much time. Lord, Holy Spirit, thank you for making making this truth known to us in in the Word. We pray that it would drive, now you would take it and drive it deep into our hearts, deep into our psyches, deep into our understanding, deep into our understanding of theology, so that we would live lives of complete and total freedom and reckless abandon to Christ, just in total thanksgiving for all that he has done. How we thank you, how we love you, and how we praise you. And we ask you just to continue to wash our hearts and minds in this truth and allow it to take deep root and to bear tremendous fruit. Father, we thank you, praise you, and love you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.